You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I am your host, Pete Mecca. The Red Cross Donut Dollies of Vietnam. Many of these wonderful ladies wear a T-shirt today with these words printed on the back. A touch of home in a combat zone. A smiling face at a bleak firebase. The illusion of calm in Vietnam. Folks, my guest this morning is one of those ladies who experienced the illusion of calm in Vietnam. Donut Dolly, Rachel Torrance. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pete. Well, I tell you what, uh, there are some folks out there who probably don't even know what a Donut Dolly is. Tell us about the Donut Dolly. What is a Donut Dolly and some of the history of the program? Okay, just quickly, I hope. Uh, You know, for a long time, Pete, I just found out a few years ago that Red Cross didn't really invent the Donut Dollies. Back in World War One, the Salvation Army had ladies that that distributed, made and distributed donuts and coffee to the soldiers. But um, when World War Two came along, the Secretary of War asked the Red Cross if they would take that over, and it was the fact that they the soldiers got donuts and coffee and from good looking young girls, and so they started calling them the Donut Dollies. And back then, they actually had trucks they converted into, like, uh, kitchens, and they would actually make the donuts and coffee themselves, and they would take them right up to the front lines uh, to distribute them. So uh, Donut Dollies were involved in Europe and in, in World War Two from... 1954 until about 1967. They also had donut dollies in Korea, and they had donuts. In Vietnam, we didn't have any donuts. I only saw donuts one time, and that was, <laughs> that was for our convoy that was, was leaving about 5 o'clock in the morning, and they asked us to come and give the guys the donuts and coffee. And, of course, the mess hall made them and, you know, had it all, had it all set up. All we had to do was jump up on the running board and hand it to the driver. So um, that was my only experience with donuts. Now, you guys, uh, people don't understand that. Uh, you were called the Donut Dollies, but uh, tell them why, although you had other treats for the troops, tell them why you didn't have donuts in Vietnam. Well, it was mostly because of the weather. It was so hot, they would have been all sticky and gummy and Probably not taste very good. We we just had to, we sort of hitchhiked around uh, the best way we could get to wherever we wanted to go. And, you know, we might catch a helicopter, we might not. We might sit in the sun for an hour or two waiting for a helicopter. So just wasn't very practical for us to do that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I don't care if the donut was soggy. If an American woman was handed in the soggy donut, they would take it and they would eat it. I guarantee you that. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, let's do this. Um, tell the people and the folks listening, how did you get the job? Well, it was, it was um, I, I think that Red Cross recruited on a lot of college campuses 
Uh, however, that was not the way I got the job. I, I just happened to, uh, I always thought it was divine intervention because God put me in the right place at the right time for me to even find out about the program. But the, the basic requirements were that you had to be between the age of 20, 24 and 21 and 24 years old. You had to be single. You had to be in good health and have a college degree from a four-year college. Uh, you also had to be a U.S. citizen that was free to travel overseas. And um, from those basic requirements, you filled out an application, sent it to, I think there were about six area headquarters, Red Cross headquarters over throughout the United States. So you sent your application in, they reviewed it, and then you would either get a call to come in for an interview or not. And so I went to Atlanta, to the Southeastern headquarters, and I've never been through an interview quite like it before or since, but they interviewed me all day and passed me around to five or six different people with different perspectives and asking me different questions and all. And um, I, I was... Uh, uh, me, I was about a quarter away from graduating from college and didn't really know what I was going to do um, mm -hmm. when I when I finished. But so anyway, that gave me some direction. Yeah, let me interrupt you just a minute. I think one of the ladies asked you the question, "Do you like men?" How did you answer? That? <laughs> oh yeah, you know, and, and being young and in college and and liking young men. I thought to myself, well, if I say yes, she's going to think that's why I want to go. But if I say no, she's going to think worse. So, I, you know, I, I guess God put the words in my mouth, but I just said, well, yes, ma'am. I have three brothers and a dad that I've lived with for a long time. And she's, her answer was, well, it's a good thing because there are a lot of men in Vietnam. <laughs> and there were, and I know they were glad to see you. Uh, why did you want to go to Vietnam, Richard? Well, I, I had several reasons why I wanted to go, but um, one of the main ones was that I was naive enough to think that I was going to go over there and I was going to figure this thing out, you know, because there was so much controversy about the war. And, of course, when I got over there, it just made all the questions, you know, I mean, it just, confused me more but anyway um that that was one of the reasons i wanted to go and then <clears throat> another reason was that i felt like that you know it had god had put me in in the knowledge so that maybe that was his his way of directing me and um what else? Oh, I come from a military family and have had relatives fighting in every war since the Revolutionary War. And um, I had three brothers that all served, and my, my youngest brother, the one closest to me in age, he was actually older than me, but he was in the military at the time. And so all those things had an influence. Also, I was sick and tired of school, and I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to do my part, but I also wanted a little excitement in my life. <laughs> you put all those things together with a young young person's mind, and it seemed like the best thing to do. Well, uh, 
I, I can say that you had a, a year of, uh, of excitement over there in Vietnam. Uh, when you got to Vietnam, um, first of all, what did your parents say when they found out you were going to Vietnam? Well, you know, I was the youngest of five siblings, five of us. And so my mother had had a lot of experience with letting go of the apron strings. And her response was that if that's what I wanted to do, she wanted me to do it. And she was very supportive um, and I think was an unusual parent, <laughs> you know, because she actually said, I wish I could have done something like that during the oh. Second World War. Well, bless your heart. What about your dad? Well, my dad, <laughs> I tell you, Pete, the day that I called to tell them I was going to ask them to come up to college because I didn't have a vehicle, um, he had a stroke. It fell off of a horse and had a had a concussion. Oh. Actually fractured his skull. And so, you know, it was all pretty much over and done with by the time he got out of the hospital and everything, so he didn't have a lot to say, but he was supportive. You know, my mother said, too, that nobody wants her children to be that far from home, but, you know, if that's what you want to do, do it. So, you know, I didn't have a problem. Yeah, one of your brothers didn't protest because he was already uh, in chopper training, right? Well, he had already signed up. He was in Germany, um, and his Demo was, uh, he was a military police, but he had already, <laughs> some sucker had taken him up in a helicopter, and, and that was all that it took, and he had already signed up to go to helicopter school. So when I wrote him for any brotherly advice that he might have, um, he just said, well, if you think you have a hard decision to make, I already made mine. And um, we we were... You know, two continents, we were separated. He was in Germany, I was in Georgia, but we were kind of making the same decision at the same time. Now, you grew up on a farm, didn't you? I did, indeed. Just a plain old country girl. Plain old country girl. Well, some of your photos don't look like a country girl. A beautiful, <laughs> beautiful young lady. What, uh, what kind of crops did y'all raise? Um, my dad had beef cattle, and we... You know, he he grew hay and corn and stuff to feed the, the cows. We had a few hogs, but that was mainly for us to eat. We killed hogs, you know, every winter, and we had a smokehouse with ham and sausage and stuff. And it was a, it was a good life. You know, we worked hard. Everybody worked on the farm, and and you never got everything done. You know, there was always something else waiting for you. But basically, got into the chicken business, and so my brother and I spent a couple of hours every afternoon when we got home from school. We had to uh, take care of gathering the eggs and grading them and washing them and all. Yeah, I remember you told me when I interviewed you for my newspaper article that you said farm work is tough and your hands get real soiled, but that was nothing compared to the heat and grime of Vietnam. Absolutely. Right? I <laughs> I, I had never really been dirty until I got to Vietnam, and, and uh, you know, all the dust from the helicopters and getting on and off and sweating, and 
when I would get back to my billet at night, I would have to scratch the grit and dirt out of my hair. And <laughs> the different color soles, you could tell where you'd been if you happened to forget that day. Uh, you know, there was red <laughs> soil, there was dark soil. Uh, oh, my goodness. That, that was pretty interesting <laughs> to a farm girl. I think the ladies be interested to know that you washed your hair every night, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, tell us, uh, well, we got about a minute or two before the commercial, that's okay, but briefly tell us about your arrival in Vietnam. Well, we arrived in the middle of the night, and um, when we landed at Tonsonut Airport, we were, we were uh, I don't know, eight or ten girls on a plane of all guys. And, you know, it was just kind of apprehensive and different. There were, you know, guys with machine guns standing all around and everything. And then as soon as we got checked in, they bussed us to, to a downtown hotel. And we slept until, you know, the next day. And we were kind of free to just walk around and get acclimated. And then, then we had like a week's training in Vietnam, uh, kind of just about what was going on and the different places that we might be sent to and so forth. Okay. We had just had two weeks of training in Washington, D.C. also. And that's when you were dragging around one of your legs from the uh, from some kind of a gamma goblin shot, is that correct? Oh, yeah. That was when, when we were going through the airport at Travis Air Force Base. You could tell, I think mostly it was the Navy and the Donut Dollies that had had a gamma globulin shot, but everybody was kind of dragging one one leg behind them because <laughs> they give it to you based on your weight, and, and it was pretty thick and kind of yeah. aggravating. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rachel, we're going to our first break. We'll be uh, right back in a couple minutes. Folks, stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com, and we'll get back to you. Thank you.
Okay, we are back with Donut Guy, Rachel Torrance, who was in Vietnam. Uh, Rachel, we got to the point where you're in Vietnam. I want you to tell the folks uh, about a dinner you had with a general, the commanding general. His name was Bond, General Bond. I assume it wasn't James Bond, but tell us about General Bond. Tell us about General Bond. General Bond was, uh, you know, I I had brothers, so I had gone to a lot of war movies, and uh, General Bond was more like Audie Murphy or maybe John Wayne. He was a real go-getter, and he was excited to meet a donut dolly. I was brand new in country, and so was he, but he was married to a donut dolly, and he he wanted to get us out there to the most remote places to see his guys just as quick as we could get there and uh, one day he had us dropped off out in the jungle there was like three tracks maybe and a few few men out there and as the helicopter took off leaving us there my thoughts were I hope the radio works and I hope they come back and get us (laughs) before it gets dark out here um but he was a delightful man, and I think he was the only commanding general that got killed by small arms fire because he used to insert with the guys. And his helicopter pilot was a friend of ours, and so he would say, he's going to get me killed. I don't mind taking him in, but I have to go back and get him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. He was, I think he was the only general in Vietnam killed by small arms fire. But he was uh, a delightful person, and... And was always enthusiastic about any time he saw us and and talked to us about what we were doing and so forth. I, you know, we had we had a unique situation, uh, Pete, because we our main mission was with enlisted guys, but we also had dinner every Sunday evening with the commanding general staff. So we got to know some of these people. I was also very close to. General George Casey Sr. when I was stationed with the 1st Air Cavalry Division. And he also got killed over there, but his was a helicopter crash. He was on his way to Cameron Bay to visit the wounded. And um, nobody knows exactly what happened, but the helicopter crashed into the side of a mountain and everybody was yeah. everybody was gone. We, we lived at the commanding general's compound and so we were friends with the you know all the admin guys that worked in the offices and so forth and to the general's aide and people like that you know we would hang out with but that was an interesting experience too and then of course when uh george casey was in the news all the time later on you know it brought back all those memories of of that i had of his his dad and how nice he was yeah. Did you, uh, now after your training in Saigon, uh, your first port of call was Long Bend, is that correct? Yes, sir. I, I was attached to two field force and the 199th Light Infantry Brigade that was in Swanlock. And, of course, General Bond was with uh, the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. I remember but, you telling me that, that uh, Long Lock was like a 4 H club compared to the fire support bases. Uh, Absolutely, it was it was in the trees, and they had a had a little hooch that they fixed up for us because we would spend the night. We would fly to 
one lock and then we would do you know work one day and then we'd spend the night and have dinner with the general and then the next day we would go out in his area again and and that was that was my prize assignment you know I, I i never worked in a center you know we had mobile units and we had places where they had a stationary building and kind of a homey place for people to for guys to go and relax when they were off duty but i really didn't want that assignment and thank goodness i didn't ever get that assignment because i loved getting out on fire bases and really seeing the real guys <laughs> I understand. Tell us a little bit about the guys at the fire support bases. How did they accept you? And and tell me a little about what you thought about the guys at these fire support bases. The guys were always great. They, they just, you know, they they admired us for being there. They they told us we were crazy. They would say, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> well, we volunteered to come over and you know play games and whatever. Um, you know. Our mission was really to break the monotony of the war and to remind them of home and that there was something for them to go back to. And so, you know, my job was just to be happy and cheerful all the time. And that came pretty natural to me. Um, They were very shy, you know, unassuming, humble, uh, appreciative of us being there. And, you know, occasionally there would be somebody maybe who had had one too many drinks or that had smoked a joint or something. And, you know, the guys always just, that person would disappear. I mean, they would just take care of him and get him out of the mix. And uh, I always felt very protected. Um, You know, they wanted to do whatever they could. And they were just amazed that somebody, you know, that we volunteered to come over there a, a lot of guys volunteered to go to Vietnam, but then there, the draft was in effect, and so there were a lot of guys over there that didn't volunteer to be there. Yeah. But they did what their country asked them to do. Rachel, I think that, that you didn't have to do anything at these fire support <laughs> bases, but just stand there and let the guys look at you. Um, I know they appreciate your presence there. Uh, also, I want you to tell the folks about the one mission to uh, Signal Mountain, north of Saigon. <laughs> okay. Um, Nui Baden uh, was the, the mountain, and uh, they had a Signal Corps group up there, and I had been there. We'd spent the day pretty much and had a great day, and I was kind of skipping out to get on the helicopter. And, you know, we always had a little... Uh, we'd be tired, but we'd go home and get cleaned up, and then there would, we'd always get together, have dinner, and have a little fun. But as I was skipping out to the helicopter, all of a sudden I felt something on the back of my leg, and I looked down, and blood was running down my leg, and a dog was running off in the opposite direction. So I just kind of dragged my leg on with me and got to the helicopter, and uh, the pilot gave me a the only rag he could find for me to wipe the blood off, which wasn't real clean, but, you know, it was okay. It was nice. So I made sure that the CO knew that the dog had bitten me. And I had a brother-in-law who was a veterinarian, and I had rabies and about animals. And so I was, I just assumed that everybody knew you were supposed to fasten the dog up and watch him. 
But instead, when I left, the guys locked, loaded, shot the dog, poured kerosene on him, and burned him because he had bitten oh. donut dolly. And uh, and that meant that there was no choice. I think the rate of rabies was about 90% of all animals in Vietnam at that time had rabies. So I got to have 14 shots in my stomach, one a day for 14 days. I didn't have any problems. Um, you know, I wasn't allergic to it. I didn't have any reaction, but I would have to get up early and go to the <clears throat> clinic and get my shot and wait 15 or 20 minutes to make sure I wasn't going to die. And then I had to go to work <laughs> and they wouldn't let me leave the base camp. And so that, that was the hardest part because I wanted to be out and about and flying and stuff. So anyway, that's my war story. And the girls, uh, made me a purple donut and presented to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is awesome. That is awesome. Now, <clears throat> the dogs in Vietnam, I heard, did not like the scent of perfume. Were you wearing perfume that day? Uh, that's true. They would assure me that the dogs were friendly and weren't going to hurt me as they snarled up and the hair stood up on my neck. <laughs> and And I would just say... I understand that they like you, but uh, they're not so fond of Donut Dolly. So, would you mind uh, just keeping him away from me? <laughs> the other interesting thing about having the rabies shots was a couple of weeks after I had gone through my rabies treatment, the general at Benoit called uh, and wanted me to come over. There was a whole company of guys that had a little puppy that had licked all over them and, you know, had been around them, and they knew that it had rabies. It died, and, oh. you know, they knew that it had rabies. Anyway, so I go, I, you know, I was very accommodating I, when the general speaks. Uh, I went over, and I just assured them that if I could survive, they could too. <laughs> they were a little apprehensive because most all of them had to, had to take the shots. Well, this is, see, these are things that people don't know about Vietnam. There's things that happen over there that uh, will be lost forever unless we hear from people like you. Now, you say you entertain the boys sometimes. What kind of entertainment did you girls uh, provide over there? Well, it wasn't like the USO show. <laughs> we, we, uh, we made up games, kind of audience, you know, so the guys could get involved in it. And we based it on... We would pick a theme, and then we would have four or five activities for them to do. Uh, I remember doing one about the Wild West, because I also watched a lot of Western movies and stuff. And um, we would have a subject that might be cooking or sports or music or whatever we knew a little bit about so that we could come up with questions and, you know, we would divide the group. We always traveled, two, two girls always traveled together, never alone. And so we would divide the group. This is my side and this is her side. And, and you would be surprised at how into the games and the competition the guys would get uh, over some little simple nothing. <laughs> But, no, but they just, had fun, and they were, they were engaged, and, um, you know, the important thing was that it just took their mind off of whatever else they were doing for, for 45 minutes or so. I think you call that a touch of home in the combat zone, right? <laughs> right. 
I also want to mention uh, we ha- we had very strict rules over there. I, my mother was pretty lenient with me, and you know about curfews and rules and everything. She would always tell me, "You know what's right, so do it." <laughs> and uh, but in Vietnam, we had very strict rules, more so than I had in college or at home. And um, we we had curfews. We had guards that. Uh, looked over us and, you know, made sure we were all in at the proper time and that all the men were gone at the proper time. <laughs> and, uh, um, we couldn't, we could not drink if we had on our uniform unless there was absolutely nothing else, you know, to drink. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I know a little secret about that. Oh, okay. Uh, Rachel, we're going to our second break. Uh, stand by, folks. This is a great, great interview with a great lady. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Hey folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show. You ever find yourself wondering if you're getting the truth or can you find the truth? Well, don't fear. Tune in every Tuesday, 2 to 3, right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show, where I won't sugarcoat a thing. I'm going to tell you how it is. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. Well, welcome back, folks. We're talking with uh, Rachel Torrance, Donut Dolly from Vietnam. Rachel, in March of 1970, you were transferred just north of Benoit to some uh, uh, oh, some group I don't think I've ever heard of, the First Cab. <laughs> Tell us about Whoa. the First Cab. You know, that, that was my love, uh, and, and I stayed there with them longer than I had any other assignment in Vietnam. Uh, you know, I was privileged to be with the 1st Cavalry Division and the 101st Airborne Division, and, you know, that that was what I was looking for, was the biggest and the best. Okay. Uh, you uh, dodged the Grim Reaper there a couple times, didn't you? Uh, Weren't you under fire one time? Well, but, you know... I didn't worry too much about that. I, I, um, 
you, you know, you're in danger when you go outside and crank up a car every morning or wherever you're going. And and I had the statistics, and I was much safer in Vietnam that year than I would have been if I'd stayed at home and driven. So I, that was one of my sales pitches, you know, to anybody that was doubtful about me going over there. Um, yeah, it was not unusual for us to have incoming uh, either on on some of the fire bases or, uh, you know, at the base camp. But there was one day when my friend and I were on, on the fire base, there was no perimeter, no concertina wire. There was one unit of mortars and some infantry there. Um, and the, they were they were shooting off the mortars going out from the time we got there. But all of a sudden, they started coming back at us. <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, you know, donut dollies were not issued for the war fighting, but uh, I felt like we were in the way. But somebody, there was only one underground bunker, and that was the fire direction center on this little, <laughs> little spot. And uh, we happened to be standing right outside the entrance, and so some... Some guy just kind of shoved me and my partner down in there, and we squeezed over in a corner and just watched and listened to what was going on. And, of course, the commanding officer was at 5,000 feet watching what was going on, and when he found out there were two donut dollies down there, he actually had his pilot bring him down. He got off the helicopter, the loach, and we got in. And the guys were handing us shrapnel as we and cheering as we were leaving. But uh, you know, you don't. You, I didn't get scared until when we were spiraling out. You could see the craters where the mortars were hitting, and uh, that's when you get scared. It's after the fact. So you know, I I I was not like petrified or scared every day that I might get killed. It's the kind of thing like driving you know you you might get killed anytime but we don't think about it so yeah. that, I don't that, think that part didn't bother me yeah i don't think that base commander wanted to report that he'd lost two <laughs> donut dollies on his base i was gonna uh, say a good way to ruin a good career <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine okay uh now if you needed to like hitch a ride somewhere, like uh, if you're stuck at Tonsalute, one of the big air bases. Uh, how did how could you get around real easy? Well, you know, we would wait patiently for 20 minutes or half an hour, and then we would go up in the tower and start talking to the guys that were directing the traffic, and we would ask them if we could get on the mic and beg for a helicopter. And we would just say, there are two donut dollies that are stranded at Tonsonoos. We need to go to two field force because anybody going that way? <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, we would get great. Uh, it was like, who could get there first? <laughs> and, you know, they were always wanting to take care of us and get us where we needed to be, whether their, whether their uh, officers above them wanted them to or not <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> So you probably caused a, a, a little bit of additional activity in the traffic pattern, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't deny that. I, uh, I talked to uh, a helicopter crew chief. His name is George Meeker. 
He's with the Army Aviation Heritage Foundation now. Uh, he told me about the donut dollies. He said the donut dollies would visit Camp Holloway in the Central Highlands. It was a welcome touch of home. I mean, a real American woman. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I hope you guys, appreciate you. It, it was um, like living in a fishbowl because no matter where we were, you know, if it was Saturday afternoon, we were going to the PX or whatever we were doing. If we were just walking to the mess hall, every everybody was pretty much watching, and it wasn't, you know, we weren't all beautiful or whatever, but we had round eyes. That was the main thing. <laughs> I do remember. I do remember. Uh, tell us about April, May of 1970. Uh, one of your uh, directors named Tumbleweed said, look here, right? yeah. look what's happened. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, we Tumbleweed was TW. She was from Texas. And uh, I, I, I don't remember specifically what, what you might be talking about, but she was the unit director at at, at the first CAV in Fook then, and I was the program director. And um, oh, when she said to you, Rachel, Rachel, look at what's happening. We're crossing the border. Oh yeah, it, she kept a map with all the fire bases marked on it, and uh, we were in her room one night making plans, and uh, all of a sudden she said, "Look." everything's moving to the border, to the Cambodian border. And I said, my goodness, you're right. <laughs> and uh, so a few days before the invasion across the border into Cambodia, she had figured it out that, that that's where we're going. And, and we, you know, we were in a lot of um, places, the areas where they did the intelligence and everything. And, and the program director had to check security every night before we would go out the next day to a fire base. And so, you know, to find out if they knew of any activity going on in the area. Sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't, but that was the best shot. But but anyway, you know, that was a real morale booster to the guys when we did. And they were flying helicopters, bringing cachets back day and night practically, but in the United States it caused a big uproar. Um, and and that was part of the, the mental dilemma that the men and the Donut Dollies had to deal with is, you know, we were over there because of the guys. It it the what happened in the war was a different subject and um it, you know but anyway, it it was a high morale and T.W. kept up with with the big picture, and I was I was trying to take care of the little picture from day to day. <laughs> kind of interesting. Well, I was there too for the Cambodian invasion. My uh, uh, intelligence team we plotted just about all the recon uh, missions for our unit. Um, I know that the boys considered it payback time. Yeah, exactly. But, our enemies could run into Cambodia and hide and eat and stay safe, except maybe when a B-52 flew over. But uh, our boys were ready to go into Cambodia. They wanted to, they want some payback. They wanted to go where they were, and uh, we were still politically held up to complete that mission. Uh, too much politics involved in Vietnam and Cambodia. You agree on that? 
Amen. Yeah. And and that was that was demoralizing to the guys. You know, they they wanted to go over there, win the war, and come home. Yeah, uh, you're, you're right. I think the American boys, all of us, we uh, we take the football field. You're supposed to kick butt and then go home. I think we like to fight wars the same way. Somebody gets out of line or they threaten us, you go kick butt, then you come home. We're not made for pro- protracted war. That's dragging out for years and years. Uh, if you, you know, I know you never get used to incoming. Uh, I never did. When the siren went off and the rocket's motors fell, you always have a little little fear. But uh, you had some reactions in the state uh, states a couple of times when you heard thunder, didn't you, when you came back? Yeah, I, I woke up one night. I was on the floor, almost under the bed, um, and and I guess it was it was a little bit of the a little bit of the same adjustment that the guys had to go through. Um, you know, of just yeah. you you don't realize it until you get away from it. You know, if I'd heard it yeah. in Vietnam, it might not have bothered me at all, but just all of a sudden in your sleep, you hear this loud noise, and that's where your mind goes. Now it's under the bed time, right? <laughs> right. Some, get, get somewhere. <laughs> I know that sometimes you were at uh, artillery units on these fire support bases, and when they uh, uh, got a call to fire off those uh, big guns, you girls sat on the sandbags and just watched and listened, but you paid a price for that, didn't you? Well, yeah, I, however, I wanted to blame my lo- hearing loss on the big guns, but I, lo- I have lost the um, high-pitch, no, the low-pitch sounds. The high-pitch is when for the helicopter pilots and all, but, um, you know, there was so much noise, the helicopters and everything, but I think my hearing loss, the doctor seems to think that it was hereditary more than it was anything that I could blame <laughs> blame it on. But I try to tell young folks nowadays, don't put those hearing buds in your ears all the time and, you know, take care of your yeah. ears because it does make a difference. It, it affects your socialization and all kinds of things, um, you know, when you can't, can't hear. Uh, you remember that movie, uh, Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams? Um, when he was supposedly talking to a fire support base guy, artillery guy, he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. You know, he was talking in a high voice because he couldn't hear. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and that is true. Uh, you eventually had an opportunity to, uh, i tell you what, before I get into this, Rachel, because this is about your brother and, and uh, the 101st Airborne, let's take our final break. And okay. Then we're going to, then we're going to get you with your brother at Camp Eagle, okay? All right, folks, we'll be right yeah. back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. 
Hey folks, this is Victor Armanderas with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday 2 to 3 live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry. I'm just right. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Rachel Torrance, Donut Dog in Vietnam. Rachel, you were given an opportunity to go to uh, Camp Eagle with the 101st Airborne, but you really accepted the assignment, uh, you know, nonchalant. You didn't show too much excitement. Why not? Well, because my brother was a helicopter pilot with the 101st Airborne, and I was dying to get up there so I could see him. But, you know, and... Our our supervisors were kind of like the army. If they knew where you wanted to go, they'd send you in the opposite direction. So, uh, I uh, when they called me, I, I was in the unit where the girl got murdered, and uh, they closed that unit down, and they didn't really know what to do with me. And so I was I went back to Fukuoka for a while and I did several TDYs and then finally they called me one day and said how would you feel about going to Camp Eagle as the unit director and I said well that would be fine wherever y'all need me to go and whatever you need me to do (laughs) you know it's just up to y'all and so they sent me up there hallelujah (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and the first night that my brother and I were able to get together um all the other girls were going to a party, a stand down, and so we were walking to the officers' club to have dinner. And they um, they went by in two jeeps, and my brother was like an old hound dog, sniffing in the air because this <laughs> fragrance, a feminine fragrance, just filled the open nothingness of, of <laughs> the air. And, um, and, you know, he, when he came to, to get me, he couldn't believe that I had running water and flushing toilets. Um, but we lived in trailers at that particular base. You know, the, the billets, uh, some places that I was stationed, we had like a wooden barracks and a central bathroom with lots of uh, showers and stuff. But um, at Camp Eagle, we had a, a little compound. There were, I think, four trailers there. And so it was high style and then high living. Um, but he was he was glad to see me. You know, we he came in the bathroom while I was finishing putting on my makeup, just like we used to do at home. And we chatted. And he assured me that everybody at home thought he was flying behind a desk. And that was the way he wanted it to stay. And I was not to tell them anything because... I was getting ready to go home. This was mm, probably October, late October, early, I mean early October, late September when I got up there. And then I went home the middle of November. So we weren't together for, you know, a long time, but it was it was long enough for me to get to know some of the guys and, that were in his unit. 
he was the operations officer, so usually when I went over at night to visit, he would be busy, and I would be busy uh, in the lounge with all the guys. <laughs> he started acting like a big brother and trying to protect me, and I had to tell him to you know, just back off. I've been doing fine <laughs> without, without you here. And, uh, you know, it touched my heart, but he was... He was in my way a little bit. So. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> anyway, that was a great experience, and 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 had a really big effect on our closeness after us both being over there. You know, he thought I was just a silly little girl, but after going to Vietnam, he thought it. You know, he he changed his opinion. He thought I might have half a brain. <laughs> I'm sure he did. You know, you told me that. Richard had uh, told the folks back home that he was had a desk job and he was not in any danger. But in fact, he'd already been shot down once. Okay, okay we're folks, uh, we're on. And uh, my apology, but our conference line dropped the calls for some reason. Oh, no. So okay, okay. anyway, we're back we're still, with we're Pete. Back and I, I was, in fact, I was hoping that it had dropped because I had a Donut Dolly coming to my front door bringing me donuts. <laughs> I wish I uh, could. That's okay. Hey, Rachel, uh, tell me about this. Uh, you girls were not allowed to drink beer with the troops, right? Right. Uh, we we were not supposed to drink any alcoholic beverages when we were in uniform. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How'd that go? Well, um... You know, occasionally we would <clears throat> tell them that we couldn't drink anything alcoholic unless that was the only thing they had to drink on the, and, and we would encourage them to, you don't have anything else to drink, do you? <laughs> and uh, the only time we would do that would be if the unit director and the program director were both together because set the example for our uh, <laughs> co-workers. But there were a couple of occasions when T.W. Tumbleweed and I would have a beer with guys. So, okay, rules were made and rules were broken, right? Right. You know, Okay. but the punishment was to be sent home, and I couldn't oh. explain that to my mother, so I was very careful about what I, which rules I broke. Rachel, tell us about your worst day in Vietnam. Tell us about your worst day. Go on my worst day. Oh heavens! I I guess. Okay, Rachel, tell me about your best day in Vietnam. My best day was every day. <laughs> Any time that I was out on the fire base meeting the guys and and so forth, you know, we would feed lunch to them. You know, we'd serve their lunch, and as they came through the mess. Line, we would be chatting and carrying banner and back and forth. And, you know, it was just, that was just my thing. I just loved being with the guys and talking to them. They were so appreciative. And one of the big things that I brought away from there was that, you know, everybody wore a uniform. We did and the, the guys did. You couldn't tell anything about a person unless you talked to them. You know, they might have a Ph.D. or they might have wealthy parents, but you didn't know any of that until you just sat down and talked to them. And so every day was an adventure, and every day was just 
you know, I was just glad to be there. And I don't know. I don't know that when, I guess the best day was the day that I got to Camp Eagle and saw my brother. But, you know, but that really was immaterial. I could have, you know, I might have gone the whole whole tour and not seen him. It was just a fortunate set of circumstances that got me there. And I, I want to say, too, you know, there were only 637 girls that were Donut Dollies in Vietnam. Um, I feel privileged that I got to see how the guys lived and what they did every, you know, on a day-to-day basis, the good days and the bad days. I, I They earned my respect in every way. You know, they didn't complain. They just did their job. Everybody had a job, whether it was monotonous or whether it was, you know, it was moments of sheer terror and whatever. But they did what was asked of them. And I think that we owe them the respect and gratitude for the sacrifices that they made. Um, you know, I just can't say enough about how good they were and, and how dedicated they were to what was what was going on. Yeah, we, they, they and we, we certainly didn't deserve the kind of reception we had when we came home. Absolutely. And, you know, people never get over that, Pete. I mean, no, no. They, just, they, just, they just don't. But fortunately, yeah. now they're getting more recognition than they ever have. And, and I just and we, praise we, that. Rachel, Rachel we, we appreciate that, too. Um, you know, we used to be called baby killers, now called heroes. We didn't need it. We just, for another generation, just like our fathers, we did our job, we did our duty, then we were called upon, we went and served. Uh, what hurts me the most is that a lot of guys, when they came back, they passed away before they ever got that kind of recognition. And I really feel heart sick about that. But, uh, Rachel, real quick, uh, young lady, apparently you hadn't had enough of Vietnam when you came home because. In 1990, you went back over there. Tell us about that. Well, I went back with a couple of guys that had flown helicopters with my brother and their commanding officer. And um, as we were planning the trip, I, I had been to several of the reunions of the guys that flew with my brother and um, with the 101st. As we were planning the trip, the guys kept talking about they were going over to Laos and climb a mountain where one of them had been shot down, spent a miserable day there during Long Sun 719 in March 1970. And um, I called one of the guys that said, I, I've got kind of this problem. I, he said, what is it? I said, well, I kind of want to go with y'all and climb the mountain. And he said, and I said, but I don't want to be a pain in the butt because I'll be the only female. And he said, if you want to go, come on. <laughs> and so that was the one and only mountain I ever intend to climb. It was 90 degrees or 100 degrees. Uh, and there were places where I could barely get my foot from one place up to the next, you know, kind of little step. But, uh, but it was a wonderful I just wanted to commemorate those people that had survived, and they wanted to memorialize those that had passed away that day on that mountain. And um, I was so tired when I got to the top that I laid down on a rock 
also saying there I was surrounded by men by men in Vietnam just like in the good old days right okay uh, Rachel a touch of home in a combat zone a smiling face at a big fire base the illusion of calm in Vietnam the story of the donut dogs thank you Rachel thank you so much for your service uh, God bless. You take care. I'll be in touch. We have to get together and legally have a beer together. Roger? Absolutely. I'll look forward to it. God bless, Richard. Thanks for joining us, folks. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.